I'm I'm uh, I'm a little bit east of you, uh, uh, east and south, southeast maybe. Yeah, spring is spring is slowly springing, <laughs> which is good. It's been a very long, it's been a long winter. Um, I should I should get recording. Um, otherwise we're gonna lose all the good stuff. Uh, so are we in in the same time? Uh, yeah, 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 we are. What are the odds? What are the odds? It's 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 amazing. We did it. We did it. We managed to make it work. Um. Uh, you're you're listening. Uh, you're listening to Interzone Pod. Uh, my name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone, and today I'm talking to Hannah Porter. Uh, hello, Hannah. Thank you very much for coming on and talking to me. Oh, I'm so pleased to speak with you. We we've spoken before about um, oh I forget how long it was. I, I time time has lost all meaning. Um, but we talked before about the seat. Mm-hmm. Your your kind of your debut. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, now you have this this new book out, which is which is uh, which is great, uh, the thick and the lean. Um, and so, yeah, maybe to start with, could you sort of tell people who are kind of new to Hannah Porter or uh, or just new to this new book uh, who you are and what this new book's about? Yeah. Um, one, I just want to say I'm so happy to be speaking with you, um, and I want to let everyone uh, listening at home that. I am a person who stutters, so should you hear me pause or say something a few times, there's nothing wrong with your audio. It's just the way that I speak. Um, Yeah, so I write speculative novels, and I write plays. Um, My first novel, The The Seep, came out in spring 2020, which is a wild time to have a debut, and that is about a gentle but paradigm shifting alien in in invasion uh that changes um humanity is like what it means to be a person their relationship to race and gender and their bodies and death um this the seep is a uh, kind of like a hive mind who can in, enable pretty much anything that you can imagine can become a reality in terms of how a person might want to present present. Um, so it's really a novel about change, but also about loss and grief. And um, do we? get meaning and pleasure from life being precious and it being finite. So all of those questions are kind of wrapped up in that. And then my second novel just came out this spring, just actually about 10 days ago. Um, It's from Saga Press. And The Thick and the Lean is a kind of mental mental puzzle. Um, I made up a culture where sexual pleasure was very public and very mundane and food pleasure was highly taboo in like the dominant culture's religion. So I wanted to personally explore the tangle that is both diet culture and purity culture and as I kind of followed the thread of what's like a classic 
sci-fi taboo switch, what if something, which is one way in our reality was turned upside down on its head in another reality. As I followed that taboo switch, the story really became about personal struggles, which I think reflect our, our, our own time, but larger polit- political struggles as well, um, including like how we grow our food now, um, our relationship to the land and to big agriculture, and these larger systems at play, including debt, labor practices. Um, so it's been really wonderful for me to dig into such a big world. Uh, and the response so far to the novel has been really great. So I'm quite pleased. Um, go- going from going from the seep to this one, how how did you feel you'd sort of changed as a writer? And, and how, I mean, the, the second novel, knowing the first, I mean, the first was really well, really well received. And it's a, it's a great novel. I, I highly recommend The Seep. Um, how did it feel going from that first book to the second book? Well, I tend to not move like linearly through my life or through time. I tend to kind of um, walk side, sideways. So I didn't write one and then the the other in like a straight um, progress mm-hmm. because it was my de- debut and it did take me some time to find um, representation and a, a publisher and that kind of thing. Um, I had actually written at minimum like an, an early complete draft of The Thick and the Lean by the time I sold this seep. But it was more like I was on draft five at that point, and now I'm on draft 20. I tend to write a lot. Um, So I moved between the two for a couple of years, and there was something very nice about as I worked on the thick and the lean after I really kind of tested my metal writing this, this seep. Um, as I said, my, 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 my background is in plays, so I didn't go to school to write fiction, and I really had to learn just through process. Um, so some things about kind of the nuts and the bolts of the writing process for The Thick and the Lean were a little bit simpler. Um, and now I think, you know, I'm finishing up a draft of a new novel now that I'm not quite ready to talk about, but the writing process of that has gone a lot more linearly and simply. So it could just be, you know, as this is not my first rodeo anymore, so to speak. I don't know. Do you guys use that expression? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. That feels like a quintessential American <laughs> expression. Um, I'm getting a little bit more straightforward now. Um, but it was cool how these books kind of spoke to one another for a time when I did work on them together. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, because I, I think I think when we spoke the first time, you mentioned that. Yeah, that, that I think you hinted this, that 
uh, you hinted about the, the kind of the premise. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. You you say you um, Kelly Jennings interviewed you for Interzone Digital, and and in that interview. Uh, which people can find at interzone.digital. Uh, in that interview, you said that kind of time is your uh, time is your kind of best editor. I think you put it or mm. something like this. That kind of you know your it it's sort of by putting it away and then coming back to it, you you're sort of seeing things that you maybe you missed. It, it, can you? I mean, did that happen? Did that happen with the thick and the lean? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I really like to work on a few different things at a time, but I'm not working on them like in the same moment or even in the same month. Um, I like to do a deep dive on a project, work on it for between, I'd say one month and maybe three months that it's really taking the whole of my attention. Um, and I'm thinking about it every day and I'm making notes and I'm moving things. Uh, and then I put it in a drawer and I, I'm a big, um, great British baking show. And I think of it as the proving drawer. Now it's like, this is where the books go <laughs> to bloom. Yeah. That's wonderful. So I give it one month is fine, but three to six months, then you're really far enough away from the material that you can just clearly see like, oh, this paragraph is so confusing for this is happening in the right way, but completely in the wrong place. I find um, I write out of time a lot. I don't know if I'm actually like a linear moving through time person. I might be, um, I might be like a DS9 wormhole. You're, you're kind of phasing in and out of, of, of reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really does happen for me a lot that I'm like, this is all happening in the right way. And now I just have to like completely reor reorder. Um, mm -hmm. but it's hard to tell um it, it, great link to deep space nine um and <laughs> and also food which is obviously i mean the seat begins at a dinner party right I, i'm i'm i think and there there is and the more i think of it now the more i think about consumption in the seat yeah that's, <laughs> that's that's a big thing um but yeah the uh, you wrote this really great sort of short essay uh for for tour uh tour.com uh, an ode to Odo's cooking and the food culture of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And and you have these sort of wonderful observations about the characters, the sort of how strange it must be to have a body and um and, and the kind of honey I'm home bit for Jadzia. And and I, I, I it's a great essay. And I um and I just wondered to uh, yeah, D Deep Space Nine. We both like Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, funnily enough, I was talking to another writer today about Deep Space Nine, so it seems to be coming back. But it, it is one of those shows that sort of, for me, I keep coming back to. Like, like what is it about the show that that draws you to it? And uh, and maybe maybe talk a little bit more about the sort of about that moment in the essay too. Mm. Gosh, I mean. I really love that Deep Space Nine is about how complicated and hard, but ultimately rich it is to stay in one place. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, 
the show starts with Bajor has been occupied for something like 60 years by the Cardassians. And it's right when they've been made to pull out. So Star Trek, um, you know, they come and they set up basically just a, you probably know the term better than I, this is where my jet lag is starting to poke through. A like provisional government is there with support from the federal nation. Provisional government. I think that's the, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know, when you look at Next Gen or when you look at the original series, they kind of dash from planet to planet. Um, They always, like, arrive into something very complicated. They make some very bold choices, and then they get, get out. And they never have to deal with, like, the consequences or, you know, Mm-hmm. cultures aren't like one mono monolith right where everyone agrees especially in like socio-political problems so i love that deep deep space nine becomes about the complications of staying put um and the infighting the political machinations of Kai Wynn and people like that on mm-hmm. Bajor. Uh, it just feels so complicated. And the, you know, the viewpoint of is someone like Kira a freedom fighter? Was she a terror terrorist? They really dig in to, into that. So I love it. Um, because it feels so much more politically nuanced um, than some of the other series, but which I really wrote about in that uh, that essay. I love the warmth, the feeling of found family that the senior crew makes. Cisco is my favorite captain. He doesn't hold himself apart from the other people. Um, as much as some of the other captains do. And I like appreciate that Picard has boundaries. And I think we only see him playing poker with his senior staff, like one time. I'm sure someone can um, tell me if that's true or not, but Cisco cooking for people just feels particularly warm and special because they are, very far away on this kind of frontier liminal space of the wormhole. Um, And it seems like he understands just through his heart that uh, these people are going to need someone to be a little more present and a little more grounded. But the thing that I really love, and then I'll stop talking so much about Star Trek is I love that this is the most like spiritually grounded in my opinion of the Star Trek shows because they are confronted by these wormhole aliens. And I, it's like that beautiful exploration of that question when science or when you 
inter interact with 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 something so far from your own like technological frame frame framework what can it be other than god or magic um right so cisco as this very science-minded very grounded starfleet captain slowly becomes I mean, not just a religious figure figurehead, but really like a spiritual messenger. He becomes the the, the prophet. It's so be- beautiful. And the, and and the he's you know that stuck in one place, but the place that changes him, right? So the, the, yeah. there's that kind of it, it, that is something that that is a, a really important part about it. The the um. As you were saying that, I was thinking that, that, that thinking about something you said in the in the interview with Kelly, mm. and you said how uh, with it, it's powerful to recognize the world around you is not static or natural, but a series of choices that we have agreed to collectively and historically. And I, I think that's also in Deep Space Nine as well, very much sort of yeah. this sort of idea of how yeah you know the, this is a world that that we've made and and sort of like dealing with that in a, in a very sort of interesting way across you know what was it seven seasons Um, yeah yeah i think that uh that odo is such a good character for that because you know he doesn't follow the law so much as he follows his own intrinsic sense of justice um because he understands that laws change based on who is in charge right um, and and you uh, you talk about as well the, the, these about the sort of Kira and how and and in that scene with the with the cooking, mm. it's a very sort of it, it's like a kind of as as a I haven't gone back to that particular episode but but as 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 you were describing it you were sort of almost describing how it was staged about you know the almost sort of I could see the the blocking and it is sort of it's a very it's a very sort of um, it's a wonderfully kind of tight scene, right? Yeah. Where all these little things are going on and sort of so much is done. Uh, uh, when you're, when you're writing, are you, are you thinking sort of theatrically? Are you thinking with, with a kind of mind to sort of where, where things are in a sort of theatrical sense in your novels as well? Is that sort of how you, how you kind of visualize the action? I have been seeing scenes in my mind that really do, um, kind of blossom out for me almost like I'm watching a movie mm-hmm. and it's so funny because when I wrote plays it was all very much language I would sometimes get a glimmer of something that a body might be doing on, on stage like I'm writing a opera libretto right now and I'm seeing my main character walk in like a very large circle. Okay. But I'm not seeing the set. I'm not seeing the lights. I'm not seeing where the other people are. But when I write novels, I very much feel like I'm watching a movie in my brain. And then I'm trying to give that to the reader as clearly as I can. And I know that I have enough to start writing a novel when I 
hear very clearly the like specific voice of the character. Like I hear their tone and then I have at least probably five of these very sparkly. I know the like expression on this character's face and I know where they're standing and you know, I like see it in a very cinematic way in my mind. And then I try to transmit that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was thinking about the seep and thinking, thinking about sort of how, yeah, how certain, certain scenes I can definitely see kind of in a, in a filmic, in a filmic way, you know, just sort of, and, and also sort of, you know, powerful scenes, but funny scenes. Yeah. There, there is that. I, I, I think there is that kind of element to it. Um, I, w- I want to move to to um, Rachel Pollock. Oh. Um, yeah, we the uh, and who I I'd, I'd forgotten had blurbed um, who had written about the seat. Yeah, uh, and and there's this she she said this great thing about how it's it's a complex portrait of people who are struggling with change, and uh, she says Porter shows us that the end of the world is easy. Um, the beginning of the world is the re- is the real challenge. Um, th- could you talk a little bit about kind of yeah, sort of what Rachel Pollock means to you and and sort of what yeah? Oh, I'd love to. So Rachel was my mentor when I uh, was at Goddard College, which is a great, um, it's a low residency MFA program. So that means that you stay in your home and you basically send like packets. And we did it uh, in the mail, like through the actual post. Um, So I went there to study with Rachel and she was already having health problems um, by the time I got there. So we only had one semester to get together. Um, but she knew that I came there for her and she made a special case for me. I believe I was her only and final student, um, in that context. Uh, I had known her through, you know, she's probably the world's foremost tarot scholar. She wrote the very seminal tarot book called 78 degrees of wisdom which i highly recommend for anyone who wants to learn more about tarot uh and she was very much like a world religion scholar Mm -hmm. um she grew up in an orthodox jewish family in new york which has a trans woman who is very much like a trans pioneer in the seventies. I can't imagine what that must've been like. Um, but, um, her novels. So I can't, I like found Rachel through tarot, tarot. Uh, and then I read books of hers, like unquenchable fire and the amazing short story collection, the 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 Beatrix Gates, and I would say her her novel Temporary Agency would be 
probably the most directly influential of the, the seep. Um, okay. It's about a reality where everyone has very highly attuned spiritual awareness. People are doing rituals at all times to like, you know, open a bank account, see if they should take a drive that day. And there are these like spirit beings interacting with people, but there's something deeply like bureaucratic about it all, which is kind of creepy and haunting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I mean, she was such a genius um, on so many levels. Uh, And her early notes on this seep were incredibly informative. She really pushed me anytime (laughs) I got into what she called like spiritual mumbo jumbo or I was too like wishy-washy. She made me be specific, particular, and concrete. Uh, um, yeah. So Rachel's notes have an indelible mark on my process. I think she's mostly responsible for the character of Pina, the bear. Oh, the bear. I at one point, yeah, I had a draft of the n- n- novel where. I had a woman who had become a dolphin and her note was, why is this such a human centric reality? What if there was a bear who had ascended consciousness? Um, Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was such a funny, funny idea. And that's how Pina was born. So, 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 yeah, the very strong, very strong links into that novel. Yeah. Um, as you, I mean, when you, when you have a teacher or you have someone who's kind of giving you input and then you sort of, you lose that input, what was, you know, with, with your, with, with the writing that came after the seep, did you sort of feel there was that presence there as you were making choices? Mm. Was, was Rachel kind of sort of like, you know, in your mind? I mean, I think her, presence as a writer teaches me and has continued to teach me and will teach me still. Um, it was wonderful that short time where I did get her concrete notes. Um, but I would say for anyone who wants to write, they should read a, a lot. I, particularly don't feel like you should run out and read whatever books are hot at the moment. I mean, that will teach you about the current marketplace, but I don't know if that will teach you what you need to know. Mm -hmm. I think that if Rachel had been, um, I think, I don't know. I'm very careful about what like contemporary books I pick up. I don't want to be overly influenced by a peer. So, so, so if something, and I'm a pretty like porous person. um, So I read a lot of older novels and then 
when I know, like I knew that there was some sort of spark between me and, uh, you know, this new novel, The Thick and the Lean and Milk Fed by Melissa Browder. I knew that that was about eating disorders and lesbian relationships. And I knew that it was very Jewish. Um, So I read it finally when I felt like I had done enough drafts that I wouldn't be pulled too far in another direction. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I do completely. Yeah. yeah. You don't you, you, you don't want to you don't want it to kind of seep in oh, oh. <laughs> Oops there is it. There it is. You don't want it to kind of seep in when you don't yeah, when you don't when you, at the wrong time, I suppose. I mean did did um did did Rachel Pollock kind of send you to other writers as well? Was that part of what was going on? Was were there recommendations or were there sort of you know you know notes about things that you could look at? I'm trying to think back. Um, not in particular that comes to my mind. I remember uh, reading. I like go through little jags sometimes where I get really into one person and. I did that with Sarah Shulman at some point, and I read like five or six of her novels, which are all terrific. And it was fun for me to see Rachel Pollock thanked in her acknowledgments. Oh, okay. It was fun for me to like construct a little story of like, everyone living in the lower east side in the 90s and <laughs> them talking about novels over tea. Um, so I really liked imagining that. But Rachel, I feel like, was more concrete in terms of we got to get down to the brass tacks. Um, something very exciting but also problematic about constructing your novel around something where kind of anything can happen Mm -hmm. like where do you put the boundaries what are the consequences this this seep being this very porous kind of magical omnipresent thing that can totally mutate physical space and then later in the book as we learn like time um makes it so that container can be narrative narratively hard to hold on to what are the stakes what are the grounding principles of this place you know it's that wonderful thing that we say on um, passover like why do we do this on this night? I think novels really need to have that kind of intrinsic specificity. Why is this happening now? And what's the container? Um, you, you also have a story. Uh, you also have a story kind of coming in, uh, in Interzone, which is a sort of story that is part of something larger isn't it could you Mm -hmm. uh, could you maybe kind of introduce that a little bit for 
uh, for readers. It's coming. It's, it's a little way off yet, but I think it's a it's a great story to talk about. I'd love that. Um, I am so thrilled that that is finding a home at Inner Zone. I have to say, that's one of my favorite things that I've ever written. You could say that it's a retelling or a reimagining of the Little Mermaid fairy tale. Um, and it's interspersed with some like auto fiction of when I was young, <laughs> um, working in a BDSM dungeon in the financial district of Manhattan. So, you know, everyone knows the little mermaid store. It's about the mermaid princess trading her legs or, or trading her her voice uh, to get legs and be be a part of the human world. Mm-hmm. I twisted it. I don't want to give away um, really anything much more than that. But I wanted to talk about talk about the things that 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 that, that we trade. Mm-hmm. The things that we trade, and and the um, what did you? I mean, was that you mentioned how time is your best editor is that and, and also how it's you know there's a favorite thing you've written was it was it a very you know was it a sort of slow process in terms of bringing together those two different elements that auto fiction and that kind of that retelling or or was that was that there right from the beginning it was there from the start and I didn't know why um I did not know that it was part of a larger novel I thought that it was a standalone piece and the novel is called Doubles. Um, it probably won't be out for another couple of years, uh, but it's these interlocking um, bits and pieces. It's a multi multiverse novel, so some of it takes place in a, in other times or in other rea- realities. Uh, the Little Mermaid was so personal to me. It was very Im- important to me when I was a child. Um, you know, I grew up with the movie. I think that it was like the first movie that I ever saw on the big screen. And I wonder if there's something about, you know, I've had a speech impe- impediment from when I was small. I don't know if that's part of what compelled me to it. Um kind of resonated because of that perhaps but there's something about the above and the below reality and that there's these two worlds living one on top of the uh, the other uh that has always really fascinated me and i think that the movie more than you know the the old fairy tale is so weirdly dark and strange you know that memorable chef scene which i would also like to say you know that's played by Ren- 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 renee it's 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 played by oh odo yeah okay mm-hmm. <laughs> he's the chef <laughs> that's i hadn't i hadn't realized okay that's that's amazing yeah that's, um and apparently he was a very good cook in real real life. Just uh, oh, so you know, so many connections. Um, 
But there's something so wild about that in terms of there are these humanoid kind of mermaids. We never find out what they consume. Like, do they eat the seaweed? Mm -hmm. Are they filtering things through their teeth in the way that the whales do? We don't really know. But we know that the people on land are like consuming their friends. Right. They're consuming their colleagues. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's something so dark about that because, you know, she's horrified by it, by the scene with the chef by Sebastian almost getting stuffed and thrown into this stew pot. And yet it doesn't complicate her like wanting to join this reality. Mm. And I don't know like what she does when she finally lives there. Does she consume flounder (laughs) when she's finally the queen? I don't know. So, these things just really, they stick in my craw and I think about them for years and they become, I just think that we're really in a time where cannibalism, we're seeing a lot more of that in genre and in sci-fi right now because I think that it's possibly the most like linear analogy for capitalism, this like myth that we're all taught that that's just the way things are in order to have a nice life. It means that you have to like consume the life of another person. You have to take their vitality. You have to take their resources. You have to exploit their labor or their bodies um, in in all kinds of ways. So I was fascinated by that. Um, And that story sat in my own personal proving drawer definitely for several years. Okay. And then it knocked on my door and told me that it wanted to be a part of a larger novel. But I'm so excited that it'll be first, you know, one little tantalizing taste. Yeah, will be in an inner zone. It's it's a very it's it's a wonderful uh, and you you have you've kind of trailed it wonderfully because because all of those things you've talked about the kind of the the layers and also the kind of the way you explore the sort of the 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 life below and the life above. And the character, I mean, the, 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 there's a character, the sea witch. There's a, a particular character that I think is just, uh, and the relationship there is just, uh, is marvelous. There's a, it's, it's a really, it's a really, um, it's, it's a really strong kind of speculative story in lots of ways, right? And it's also, but it's also just a really satisfying read oh. in other ways. So yeah, I can't wait to, yeah, I can't wait to get it out there. Please. So yeah, do do visit interzone.press and uh, take out a subscription to help uh, help get this one out. <laughs> and um let me uh let me see. There was something else I wanted to ask you. Oh yeah, you mentioned how your 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 you sort of your your reading tastes and sort of like what your 
what you're kind of looking at. Well, what's what have you taken with you to Berlin? Well, what's because uh, you're in Berlin at the moment? Oh, I am. I'm enjoying it here very much. So I typically try to not bring something that I'm almost done with, but um. I couldn't put it down. So I finished the death of Vivek Foji on the plane. Um, the new, uh, it's not new, it's from 2020, but the Amese novel. And I brought Camille Roy's Honey Mine, which is a collection of short stories. Um, mm-hmm. Camille Roy is a poet who has meant a lot to me. I believe that she has a epigraph in the seat, the seep that I love. Yeah. So I'm reading both of those and I'm listening to when we were orphans oh. by, um, Gero because he's my thing that I feel like I need to complete. Mm-hmm. I finally got around to reading. Never let me go. Um, okay. And I was like, I, I had read like a few of his, I'd read Clara and the sun when it came out. Um, and I have, a, I, I had, I had read the remains of the day and the buried giant. And now I'm like, I think I should read all. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think I should read everything that he's done and then I will feel completed. Yeah. Yeah, when when we were orphans is really interesting, particularly if you've been read because I, I guess I I haven't read the more recent ones he's he's written, mm. but but going the other going the other way, I, I wonder how yeah I wonder how that one reads or or what that one's like after after reading some of the later stuff like how are you finding it? Um, I don't know yet. It's too soon to tell. I find that he's someone that I can really listen to. Like his work as an, an audiobook does work for me. Not every novel is like that for me. And I'm not totally sure why. Um, I wonder if it's something to do with that. I think he, he does have very fine sentences. Uh, there is a sort of maybe maybe there is something. I haven't. I don't think I've actually heard an audiobook of, of Anishiguro. That's a. I'm. I'm intrigued now. I, I would have to. Dig I out. mean, listening to the remains of the day was absolutely wonderful. I there's something about he does have very elegant sentence sentences, but there's a real simplicity too, um, and there's this feeling of I'm going to tell you a story, you know. He's not moving around in time a lot. Uh, I guess he does. I don't know. He does it in such an elegant way. Because he really does go between two different time streams. And yet, I feel like there's such linear propulsion. Right. And that's something that I think about a lot. I think pacing, when you have a narrative in the present and a narrative in the past is so complicated. I don't think, I don't know if I told you or not, Gareth, I'm um, writing the libretto for an opera of Le Guin's The Dispossessed. I think you, I think it came up in the, in the interview with, uh, with Kelly. I think you mentioned that. Yeah, no, yeah. Tell, yeah. Talk about that. 
That is, I mean, so I've now read that. <laughs> I've now read that like 70 times. Um, and it, it like teaches me a lot every single time. And if anyone would like a masterclass, then, you know, it's 13 chapters and every other chapter, one of them is the present time stream. And then the um, alternating chapters are the past time stream. And then they meet. It's just exquisitely structured. And it's a book about time. It's about, you know, where the philosophy and the science, where the physics of time meet up. So she's talking about time as a circle, um, rotations, patterns, clocks, seasons. And then she's talking about time as a river, linear time, how, you know, reading a book from cover to cover, how we have to have that, have marching forward progress of time to have meaning, but Mm -hmm. things are made meaningful through repetition and pattern and cycling. Uh, Yeah. So I highly suggest anyone kind of studying that like story boarding that out to really play with pacing and how, and you're you're writing the libretto yes. for this, yeah. So 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 how yeah what, what for how how did that come about and also what how 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 do you translate that sort of structure into what you're doing or or is the structure already you know what what's the process there? Well, my partner um, is a Kim composer Ted Hearn. Um, I met them in 2017 and. I sent them basically a copy of that. Ooh, I sent them a very sweet, like, I'm falling in love with you book bundle. And I want to tell you all what those are. <laughs> I sent them the, the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Lovell, mm-hmm. which I think is another sort of masterclass and an excellent novella. Um, and I sent them Eugene Lim's novel about superheroes and Occupy Wall Street. Oh my God, what is that called? Dear Cy- Cyborgs. I love that book so much. Okay. It is so good. So I sent them that. And then the third book that I sent them was The Dispossessed. Um, and we've just been talking about it for a long time over the course of our relationship. They write, uh, you know, massive theater and opera projects. We're in Berlin now because Ted will have a piece at Komischer uh-huh. Opera in February. Um, so I think around 2020, we contacted Le Guin's estate and they agreed to give give us their their, their rights mm. which i just felt like you know in terms of time streams that was my life as a playwright and my life as a science 
fiction writer coming to a beautiful, a beautiful junction. <laughs> um, I didn't feel quite as bifurcated. So I've been trying to keep the entire libretto her text and I like carve it out. Um, but I really, it's giving me such a masterclass in language economy. Um, even writing a play is not the same at all as writing a libretto. Like something that's, one will sound good, like from a vowel, like a mouth sound point of view. Uh-huh. Something that needs to be sung rather than something that needs to be spoken. Uh-huh. That's a completely different thing. Right. Um, and then how to get enough of this complex plot across that the why and the how of the book stays intact. Mm. And yet it doesn't feel like you're watching a musical book report. It feels like there's a magical thing happening in this adaptation. It will hopefully inspire people to go out and get the novel, but it can't be the whole novel in any stretch on the stage. It has to be these kind of refined, shimmering motifs that play through. So I really, I mean, I've been working on it now for several years. Um, I just approached another draft. I'm on draft seven. Hopefully we're getting close to the music writing part, but you know, Ted is not going to make many drafts of the music. <laughs> um, so the libretto has to be very close to being done before we start. Orchestrate something for either like a chamber, a chamber orchestra or a symphony is very, very complicated. Um, and even like rehearsing with them is a very expensive and kind of elaborate undertaking. So Ted needs to have a very clear sense of what the music needs to be before they start to draft. And then things can be changed and tweaked and kind of built upon, but there can't be like a radical new construction construction. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a lot of pressure. I'm up for it. That's that's that sounds fantastic. Um, well, we've covered we've covered a lot, so much there. So um, so um, the thick and the lean is out now. Uh, Saga Press. Um, do do get a copy of that. Uh, the Seep as well. I highly recommend. Mermaid variations coming in into zone, and uh, and um, yeah, that's 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 fantastic. Uh, you're you're listening to uh, Interzone Pod. Uh, My name is Gareth Jelly, and I've been talking to Hannah Porter. Thank you very much, Hannah. It was such a delight, Gareth. Stay in touch.